Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian in Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, and chapter 21, verses 1 through 7 texts that tell us of baby Isaac's imminent and then actual arrival. When the three men come to Abraham and tell him that this baby will indeed be born to these two nonagenarians, Sarah famously laughs. We wonder what is going through Sarah's mind and heart at this moment, and what's in there when she denies it, and again, when that moment of laughter becomes memorialized in the name of her beloved son. Sometimes the gravitas of trying to have a relationship with the divine makes things a little serious. But this story made us wonder, what is the role of laughter and joyful surprise in our lives of faith? Thanks for being with us. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Hey, Amy. I'm good. I'm so glad to be back in the Bible worm. My life feels like it has meaning and purpose again. Sorry, I laughed too loud. No. <laughs> I do lose the rhythm for sure, though, in the summer. Like, I like yeah. having that space, but man, eventually I lose the rhythm and it all becomes a formless blob. Tohu vavohu. <laughs> we, are, we are the structure. Mm-hmm. There was evening and there was morning on this <laughs> yeah. podcast episode. Bobby, I have to tell you something and I'm not sure if you will be honored or offended or neither. <laughs> and so it's like telling you in a public place by doing it on the podcast. Uh-huh. So you can't be too mad or you have to pretend you're not. This is quite the buildup. I know. Are you excited? I have no idea what's about to okay. happen next. So basically it's that I think of you in particular like every week in Shabbat services during a particular part of the service. And I want to tell you why. Oh. So first I have to tell our listeners who probably already – know this, that to embark on any kind of advanced study generally requires a certain amount of like neuroticism, right? Yeah. And so in our field, one area of neuroticism that one might develop is around Hebrew. Yes. And like the details of Hebrew (laughs) language. Yeah. Certainly, I also had some of this, but you, Bobby, like you kind of took it to another level than I did in graduate (laughs) school. Would you agree with that? I became very invested in why certain Hebrew words had certain vowel pointings and such. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you did not give me a lot of leeway for sloppiness in my Hebrew, which (laughs) was good. I don't remember that, but that might be true. It was good, but you would hold my feet to the fire and it was good and also annoying, but mostly good. (laughs) <laughs> so anyway, there's this part of the service that that refers to Adonai Tzavaot, the Lord of hosts. But uh, my community always says Adonai Tzavaot, like shifts the stress oh, back yeah. one syllable, which is comes like comes from just the Ashkenazi sort of Yiddish 
ways of pronouncing Hebrew, but and I and it fits the melody better, uh, and it's yeah. so satisfying for me to say it that way. In part because I'm like, oh, that would make Bobby so. Mad. <laughs> yeah. Listen yeah. to all these Jews saying Adonai Tzavod. Ha ha, you can't yeah, stop that's us. that's funny. I can't <laughs> stop you. You can't stop us. Yeah, no, that would drive me crazy. Yeah. I don't have a lot yeah. of room to comment probably about people's pronunciation necessarily, but I'm glad that you feel a certain like up yours, Williamson, <laughs> while the, you read no. the Holy, Holy Scripture. <laughs> It's like you can't make me say it the other way. Hey, speaking I mean, of up yours, there is also a point in the <laughs> there's also a point in the Christian service every week where I think of you. Did you know this? <laughs> I didn't know you thought of me, but I know I what should, you're going to say. I think of you every single for like 20 years, <laughs> and it's in the the beginning of the communion liturgy, and the the pastor yeah. said you were telling me. I guess you were in an Episcopal service with your in laws or something. I, I think don't. It was Catholic. I, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember the, the whole story, but yeah, mm-hmm. and the priest says. The Lord be with you, and then the congregation says, and I'll stay with you. And then the priest says, We lift our, our sorry, lift your hearts up to the Lord. And then you was it you shouted out like lift up yours. <laughs> or something like that. I thought I understood the pattern. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like we're reciprocating here. Yeah. Isn't it lovely and mutual? But I said, Why am I talking during a church service? Yeah. Why? Why so I, I often, when in the middle of a communion liturgy, I say up yours to the, priest, to the priest. I do it real quiet. Like I try not to be disruptive and it makes me laugh and I feel connected to you. Oh, Lordy. Okay. All right. Now we're focused. We got yes, all that focused. out of the way. Whew. We're focused and we're deeply connected in our different religious services every week. Great. It's week two. Week two. Of our series. And last week we were in the Garden of Eden And this week, we are reading Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 15, and then chapter 21, verses 1 to 7, which is, uh, I guess I would say, mostly about learning about Isaac's imminent arrival. Yeah. A little bit more before that in 18 that we'll get to. It is just, I don't know how you would even start to summarize what we really need to know that's happened between last week and this week in our text, but... Give it a sh- give it a go, Williamson. Give it a go, yeah. Give it a go. I mean, there's so much that happens between Genesis two and Genesis eighteen. I think the gist of it is something like after the Garden of Eden story that we read. Of course, there is the issue with the serpent who tricks Adam and Eve into eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we talked about a little bit last time. Mm-hmm. And God's relationship with humankind is completely disrupted by that. People start, they get kicked out of the garden. They start doing crazy things. And so the Genesis 1 to 11 is by and large kind of God. I read it as God like trying to figure out how to reconcile the relationship with humankind. Mm -hmm. We get the flood story. We get the humans building the Tower of Babel and then God scattering people across the land. It's like God's trying to work with humankind as a whole and it is not going great. Mm -hmm. So in Genesis 12, God sort of pivots and says, you know what? I'm going to choose one person, one family out of the world, and I'm going to have a special relationship with them. And so God chooses Abram and Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, and promises them a child, even though they are quite old at the time. And so between Genesis 12 and our text, you get this sort of wrestling around with if we're promised a child, but we're old, 
how's that going to happen? And so we get the story of Abram with uh, Sarah and Hagar in Genesis 16, which we talked about in our summer series, which is worth going back mm-hmm. and listening to if you haven't already done it. I mean, I know you've done it. <laughs> like you, you were there, uh, yeah. but for listeners. Uh, and then this confusion about who's going to be the mother and maybe it's going to be my uh, the head of my household who's going to be mm-hmm. anyway. And so then this text is sort of the culmination of that kind of trajectory about how are we going to have a child who fulfills the promise that was given to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis mm-hmm. 12. Mm-hmm. What would you say more or differently than that? Well, first of all, I really liked your description of um, – choosing sort of like trying to have a relationship with all the people and like, okay, this is just a little too chaotic. There's, (laughs) I can't do this. And so narrowing it down, it reminded me of the difference between tutoring a middle schooler and teaching a middle school class. Oh, very different, very different experiences. Yeah. But more, more relevant. I think, uh, the only other thing I would add is just the really immediate context for chapter 18, which is that just at the end of the last chapter, Abraham has been circumcised. Yes. As a, an old guy. Yes. <laughs> and so when we when we 99 launch, years old. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> quite old. <laughs> so um so yeah, as we as we begin this uh next story, if you imagine that the chapters lead immediately one into the next sort of temporally, then uh, you imagine that Abraham is physically recovering from that. Yes. Oh, that's important. Yeah. I don't, I don't read this text that way, but that, I like that. I'm, I'm going to hang on to that and see where that leads us. Yeah. All right. You ready? I'm ready. Let's do Let's it. Let's do it. All right. So we are picking up at the beginning of chapter 18, and I am reading from the NJPS. The Lord appeared to him by the terebinths of Mamre. He was sitting at the entrance of the tent as the day grew hot. Looking up, he saw three men standing near him. As soon as he saw them, he ran from the entrance of the tent to greet them, and bowing to the ground, he said, My lords, if it please you, do not go on past your servant. Let a little water be brought. Bathe your feet and recline under the tree. And let me fetch a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. Then go on, seeing that you have come your servant's way. They replied, do as you have said. Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of choice flour, knead and make cakes. Then Abraham ran to the herd, took a calf tender and choice and gave it to a servant boy who hastened to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And he waited on them under the tree as they ate. It always makes me laugh a little bit that he's so eager to serve them and then is like, Sarah, make some bread. <laughs> Servant boy, go slaughter this calf. Like, Yeah. Like, yeah, me really too. That's what the Bible Room Collaborative actually said about this text. I mean, it like, it's just. It is yeah. set in its own context, which is yes. patriarchal in all the ways. Yes. Abraham is doing what he's, you know, doing yes. what he's supposed to do. But yes, you're right. His his act of generosity sure does involve a lot of labor by a lot of people who get very little credit for it. <laughs> it does. It does. Mm-hmm. He was, but he was carrying the clipboard, so that's an important. He was. I mean, that's clipboards. Like they they can be snappy, you know. Like have you ever got your finger caught in one of those little clipboard thingies? 
No, you're more coordinated than I am. Yeah, it is. Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Never underestimate the dangers. Okay, Bobby, the first thing I want to ask you about actually is before the three men even show up on the scene. Yeah. So this section of text is is its own sort of weekly reading. It's the beginning of a new weekly reading, a new Parsha in the Jewish community called Vayera, which is the Lord appeared to Abraham. Yeah. Do you understand that? Or do you have any way of understanding like it is... Is Abraham like having some experience with God and then these three apparently men show up? I say apparently men because later it seems that maybe they're angels or something like that. But here they're just described as men. How do you understand the sort of relationship between God appearing and these people appearing? That's such an interesting way of asking that question. I have not thought of it that way. Like, that Abraham was having some kind of experience. And then Mm -hmm. I read this as sort of saying like, let me tell you about the time that the Lord appeared to Abraham Mm. while he was standing at the, by the Oaks of Mamre. And then here's the story. The three men appeared. So Mm -hmm. I read that as like the three men Mm -hmm. appearing to him is the event that is Is described as the Lord appeared. Is that how you read that? Or do you do something different? I mean, I think that that is how I have often read it. There's also a tradition of rabbinic reading that reads it the other way, that that God actually turns, I'm sorry, that Abraham turns away from this experience with God in order to, like, be hospitable to the people before him. Oh, that's interesting. And, And the Talmud said that is, you know, welcoming travelers is greater than welcoming the divine presence. Yeah. So I don't know. That's a different... A different direction to go in. I don't so know. I really love that there. interpretation in terms of like what you can unfold there theologically. Like that's really beautiful. In terms of the like narrative flow, like it seems mm-hmm. like God continues to speak in this text, and but the actual ones speaking are the three men. So it seems to me like if you read the narrative as a whole, like God is somehow. God is certain. Yes, you're certainly yes. God is yeah. in in the mix of whatever's happening with these three. Yeah. Men. But but I really love that interpretation of sometimes the most important thing is how did you say that to step away from the divine encounter to yeah show hospitality to, yeah care for the people who are right in front of you yeah I like that a lot yeah and then it's interesting to think about God being then woven into that experience yeah. like you were maybe having an experience that just felt like you and God like some kind of revelation yeah experience. And then the people show up. And when you turn your attention to the people, look at that. God's in that too. Yeah. So I make that second move, but I don't necessarily make the first move. You don't one, make which, the first move. I which is to you. say God is in the interactions you have with people that you don't know necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I like that. That's an interesting way of reading it's it. interesting. Yeah. Okay. So as far as we know, at least at this point in the text, these are three men. Right. Abraham is recovering from a procedure. The three men approach him and he really like springs into action. He does. Yeah. I mean, I guess my big question is why, but maybe I don't know if you want to sort of put that in the context of this time and place or of Abraham's personality or he, he really is, He's very enthusiastic 
yes. treat them. Yeah. I mean, I think that I would put it in the context of both of those things. So yeah. in terms of time and place, you know, this is, we've talked before on the podcast just about the the dangers, the difficulties of traveling in the ancient world. And like, you're away from all of your social networks and safety systems. And like, where are you going to get your food from? Like, there's just yeah. a lot of vulnerability. And so showing hospitality to strangers, to people who are coming into your place and need someone to care for them, like that was a mark of a good, generous kind of person you want to be. And, you know, in my own context, like I've got a five-year-old and so we're talking about like stranger danger and tricky people and like, be careful who you talk to. And like, I mean, and rightly so, but in, in this context, it was, ah, there's somebody who's a stranger. They don't know anyone. They must need somebody. Mm -hmm. And so here is Abraham. I, I think it also says something really important about him that he responds to that need. Like there is no obligation. There, there's sort of an expectation that you should treat strangers this way. But Abraham, because of who he is, I think, is not just doing what he's got to do, but he's enthusiastically doing it. He's so excited to see these folks. He's, you know, bowing down to them and referring to them with honorifics and doing all of yeah. these things. It's like, it's almost like it's a it's an honor for him. I mean, it is an honor for him. Like, thank you so much for letting me serve you. Like, it just says something really important, I think, about who Abraham is. Yeah. And then I think something about what the biblical ideal is for how you and I might be also. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting to think about the context of, you know, yeah, tricky people and sort of our our own sense now of of being, you know, strangers are a potential source of danger, and that's true. But these are three travelers. It is the heat of the day. Yeah. Like they're not, which is not really the time that you go for a walk in the desert. I don't right. know why, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't, that is not traveling time. And so, yeah, maybe Abraham is not a friendly guy, but maybe they're going to die anyway if they don't stop and get, yeah. <laughs> you know, some water at, at, at the hands of this generous person who is offering it. Yeah. The other thing that strikes me about this text is they don't actually ask him for anything. No. It's that mm-hmm. it's not that somebody has asked him and impinged upon his time and he has said, yes, it's my obligation to do this for you. They just seem to be kind of minding their own business. And yeah. Abraham goes to them and says, I would like to do this for you. Will you allow me to do this for you? I I just love that. And it like it's convicting to me about how even when I do stop and help yeah. people, it is often kind of begrudgingly. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I just I, I I really love what Abraham is up to here. Yeah, no, it's um it's it's pretty amazing. But and like the the care that he offers for their bodies, and as you said, the sort of honor and dignity that he affords them in the language that he uses towards them and that he asks their permission for everything. Yes. There's a a rabbinic teaching that the way that Abraham cares for these visitors with water and bread and then shade is the same way that God then provides for the Israelites in the desert with water and manna and this cover of clouds. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah, there's, there's a real... Yeah, Abraham. Abraham does good here. There's some other other stories where he's <laughs> <laughs> less good. But, or, yeah. Well, I don't know. Where he's you know his 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 enthusiasm to respond to what he believes is being asked of him is yes. uh, 
a little a little heavier to hold. But, yes, um, that is for sure. Not so much for this part. Yeah, this uh, this story is the the paradigmatic example of one, maybe even two, like early education Jewish teachings. One of them is which is welcoming guests. And so like our kindergarten class at religious school studies this story. And then they dress up like Abraham and Sarah and they invite all these people from the synagogue to visit the classroom. And they like greet you at the door and give you a stale cookie on a plate and a knife. And then you have to try to cut the stale cookie with the knife. It's very adorable and ridiculous. And the other one, and then I promise we'll go on in a minute, is Bikor Cholim, visiting the sick. Yeah. The idea being that God sends visitors to distract Abraham from his own pain. Oh, that's so interesting. Which yeah. again is a really different way to look at it because it's sort of as like I would think he's in pain. And so, you know, sending him visitors he's gonna have to cook for is kind of like you know, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking about that. That's not really what you're looking yeah. for. But it certainly is a is a distraction. Yeah. I think it's so interesting. There's nothing that forced, like, we don't know how much time has passed between 17 and 18. No. And so yeah. I think it's entirely possible, as I have, I think, always done, to read this as just, like, sometime later. And so that circumcision doesn't enter in. But bringing that in the way you're doing it as, like, narratively, this is, like, the very next thing. And so let's think about it that way. I I really love that. It's uh, There's so much richness that you can pull out of that. I like that. I'm trying to think about whether I can, now I can think of it as my good deed to show up to somebody's house and ask, ask them to cook for me or to like stand <laughs> on their front porch awkwardly until they invite me in for a meal. That's what you should do. Yeah. yeah just sit on their porch. <laughs> I'll be like, this is my gift to you as you get to, you get to feed me. <laughs> That's beautiful. I love it. So Amy, what I thought you were going to ask me about, which you did not ask me about at least yet, mm-hmm. is about the terebinths of mom, mm. right? That was, yes, that was my next question. So what was can it, you tell yeah, us? Yeah, yeah. Uh, all I want to, so terebinth, I didn't know where that word comes from exactly, but it really is just a tree, right? The CEB is the oak trees yeah. of Mamre. Yeah. But in Genesis, like these particular oaks at Mamre are a shrine or an altar that Abraham has established. And so this is a place all the way back in Genesis 13 that Abraham has already been and already built an altar to the Lord. So it is a, in that sense, a religious place for him. And also in our text, it seems to be that he's at his house. And so there's this kind of interesting juxtaposition of like the place where he resides and also the place where he worships. And this story is taking place somehow in and around both of those spaces at the same time. I don't know where that goes, but to me, that somehow seems important. I love that. And I actually had not realized that this particular place had already come up in Genesis 13. I mean, I, I certainly am struck by the, you know, there is in many religious traditions a, a real sense of like the sacred sacredness or sacred space that surrounds big trees. Yeah. Um, and all the more so if you're in the desert, is there... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a sense that they really are caring for your needs in a way that nothing else can. Yeah. But that is really interesting that this particular place has already been mentioned. Yeah. And that makes the appearance of the Lord at the beginning all the more yes. pointed. Yes. You know? Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here from the Bible Worm Podcast. 
Welcome to Season 5 of Bible Worm and the New Year of the Narrative Lectionary. To celebrate the start of the new season, for the month of September, we're making all our Patreon benefits available to subscribers at any level. You can join at the Bible Worm supporter level for just $4 a month to receive access to early episodes, weekly liturgies, and video Bible studies for the whole month of September. At the end of the month, if you want to continue receiving these benefits, you can subscribe at a higher level. If not, you can cancel anytime. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details on becoming part of Bible Worm's Patreon community. Thanks for listening, and now back to this week's episode. Okay, so I'm picking up in verse 9. They said to him, Where is your wife Sarah? And he replied, There in the tent. Then one said, I will return to you next year, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Sarah had stopped having the periods of women. And Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Now that I'm withered, am I to have enjoyment with my husband so old? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I in truth bear a child, old as I am? Is anything too wondrous for the Lord? I will return to you at the same season next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah lied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was frightened. But God replied, You did laugh. (laughs) Oh, yes, you did. Oh, you did. Let's go to the videotape, Sarah. (laughs) Okay, I think my overarching question in this in this section of the text is like, what is Sarah's relationship to this whole conversation that is happening? Like, there are some ways in which it seems like everything is funneling through Abraham and she's in the background, but then sometimes she's not in the background. Why do you think they start out asking, where is your wife, Sarah? Like, do they want Sarah to hear? Do they not want her to hear? Are they confirming that she exists and this is actually Abraham? Like, I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know either. Like, it seems like they would say, where is your wife, Sarah? Go, go, come bring her over and she can have some of these curds and whey with us. But that's not what they say. I don't know. I think it's like the way that I want to read it is that they're, they're just checking to see if she's within earshot. Do they want her to be in earshot? I think I think so. But I don't really know. I'm just I'm just yeah. like speculating. No, I don't really. I mean, know. I don't know that and I don't I don't know that there's any great answer to this, but I think it just sort of raises up the perpetual question of texts set in this time period of where I don't know, where where are the women in this story and where are they not? Like this yeah. is and, and Sarah has a very important role in this story. She, yes. Urgently important. Yes. Urgently. <laughs> urgent. We might argue she is the protagonist of this story. <laughs> but is also somewhat behind the scenes in strange ways. Yes. No, that is absolutely right. And thinking about how, yeah, that sort of presence, but also absence. Like, I don't quite know where that leads, but I think yeah. you're exactly right. She is so present in the story and yet weirdly absent from the story at the same time. 
So one advantage of being weirdly absent from a scene is that you can laugh to yourself. Like you don't have to check your face, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as you do if you're like sitting at the table. However, that doesn't that doesn't work out that well for Sarah in this case. <laughs> no, and I mean, people ask like in verse 15, like why is she frightened? Mm-hmm. And one possible answer to that is just like she, you know, laughed silently behind the door and they knew what had happened. And so like these, these guys seem to have some knowledge that's beyond themselves. Like they can Mm. see things that are not seeable. Mm -hmm. There's other ways of reading that too, I imagine, but that moment of she thinks she's in private, having a private moment. And in fact, it is apparent to these men like that is, that's kind of a scary thing. Well, Okay, so on that, the end of this section of text is where it gets especially fuzzy to me. What is the relationship between the Lord and these yeah. men? Yeah. Because it, it it says that it was one of the men who said to Abraham that Sarah would have a baby. But then after Sarah laughs, it says the Lord said to Abraham. Is there anything else to say? I mean... What what can be said about the relationship between these men and the Lord? Yeah, these three men and the Lord, that's a, <laughs> like that's a million dollar question, right? Yeah. Christian interpretation loves these three men who show up uh, as God because like there's like the Trinity just waiting, just begging to mm-hmm. be read on, into this text. And so there's some really beautiful iconography that depicts these three messengers as the trinity and like it's it's a really lovely idea i do not think that's what genesis is doing in the first instance there are other places where god shows up and speaks and is in the uh, the language of a messenger of the lord or an angel of the lord and the lord they they're really messy about how do you pull them apart Mm -hmm. and so i think there's this sense in which sometimes god appears in the form of a messenger and that messenger is God, but God is not exhausted by that messenger. Does that, does that make sense? God is present in that messenger, but the messenger is not the sum and total of God. Yeah. In this text, there's three men. When they get to Sodom in chapter 19, there's only two messengers who go to Sodom. And so the way that I have tended to read that is that there's three messengers, one of which is to be uh, associated directly with the Lord and two of which are sort of, you know, Mm. angel sidekicks. Mm -hmm. And the one who is associated with the Lord is the one who is speaking in this text. Mm. I don't know that that's the only way that you could put that together though. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you put that together? don't really, but I just kind of love that. I love the messiness of it. Like you said something in there about that had me, I don't know, just thinking about this, this belief that again, I think really crosses religious boundaries that God so often shows up in the person who is in front of us. Right. And this is a, you know, this is a case where like, these are I think understood to be like really messengers from God. So it's like a little, it's all the more so it's not just, you know, the person sitting next to you on the bus, but that that is just a normal thing. Like that is a way that God manifests 
right. in the world or or communicates things to us. I mean, we're humans and we understand human language, so it's good to have human messengers. Right. I really like that idea. There's also a question in this text of whether and at what point Abraham and Sarah realize that they're talking to the Lord. Mm-hmm. I tend to read it as they don't know. Maybe they start to get a clue around verse 10 when there's an announcement about the giving of the son and the question about in verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Like, I think you maybe you start to get a, get a clue there. But I think in the first part of this text, they're just talking to these men and they're sort of slowly dawning on them what is what is happening. How, yeah. Do you have a way of a way of reading that? I certainly read the beginning of it the way you do, that these are they have no reason to to believe that these are have some some closer than usual relationship to the divine. Yeah. I never really thought about the question of do they think towards the end that these are divine messengers or that they are somehow God or like some kind of proto prophet. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But I mean, the fact that even when the text says the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, et cetera, et cetera. Is there anything too wondrous for the Lord? I mean, you know, God refers to God's self in the third person sometimes, but anyone could have said that like, right. You know, I was thinking that by the time Abraham argues with God about Sodom in the next part of this chapter that we're not going to read, yes. Abraham does seem to think yes. he's addressing God. But actually, I'm not. You could actually read that text, at least in my quick skim of it, and just think that it was somebody with a lot of power. So anyway, so I don't know. But I, I tend to think by the end that they at least are getting I a I suspect an something is going on here. Yeah. Bobby, what do you think Sarah laughed? So sometimes this is read as like, I don't know, like Sarah is not adequately faithful or something. Mm-hmm. And I just, I don't like that reading at all. I think, I mean, she says it right there. Like, I'm old. I'm no longer able to experience sexual pleasure or something like that, she says. Uh, this is a ridiculous thing that is being said to me. It is ridiculous. Yeah. And so she laughs because it's ridiculous. Yeah. And yeah. you know, Abraham laughed when God said the same thing to him earlier right. in chapter 17. And people are gonna laugh in chapter 21 when we get there here in a minute. So I just think I don't I don't think this text is trying to make a negative statement about laughter. I think it's trying to say like God is able to do things that are so ridiculous mm-hmm. that they make you laugh. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's how I read Sarah here. She's like, that's a crazy thing that just, that, that guy just said. Yeah. And she laughs to herself. Like, she's not being rude. She laughs to herself. How, how would you interpret that? I mean, I do not, like you, I don't necessarily think that she's laughing like, God could never do that. I I think I read it as a, yeah, sort of like surprise and yeah. ridiculousness. And I mean, I don't know if people were sort of as like coy and embarrassed about sex as they tend to be now, but like that's a it's a pretty strange <laughs> Yeah. I don't know, yeah, like yeah. it makes you laugh. Like it, yeah. it just it makes you laugh. Yeah. It's a very private thing to have three messengers come talk <laughs> yeah. to you about. Yeah. Like um, you just cooked them a loaf of bread and now they're talking about your sex life. You're like, Yeah, what? I know, like what <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> what is happening? Mm-hmm. But I think that I, but then I, I read the end as her getting a little bit scolded. Yeah. Can you say more about that? Well, it seems like in verse 13, the Lord is interpreting Sarah's laugh as thinking God can't or won't do that. Like, why did Sarah laugh? Is mm-hmm. any is anything too wondrous for the Lord? Like, don't mm-hmm. laugh at that. This is serious. I can, I can do, I feel like she gets scolded. Yeah. And then the fact that she's, frightened enough to lie doesn't necessarily mean that she was scolded or that she wasn't scolded, but she felt yeah, like she was in trouble. Yeah. But I really want to hold on to that first reading that we had that like life is full of ridiculous and amazing surprises that make you laugh because they're so unexpected. Yeah. The role of laughter in this text is so interesting. And it's going to like in the next part of this text that we read in chapter 21, like it comes up, it comes up again. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's something really important happening here about that. I'm totally with you about she feels like she was scolded. I really want to read it as like, not as scolding, but like as like, I'm trying to think of a parallel example. Like when you say something you're going to do for somebody and they laugh and you're like, no, really? Like, I, like we're going to do that. Or like, mm-hmm. yeah, like the, the, the reason for the laughing is that the thing is too wonderful to imagine. And so you just mm-hmm. laugh because like, oh, that seems so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And then God's response is like, no, for real. Like I, I can do this thing that I said. And it's not like, why did you laugh at me? But like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, no, right. really, I can do this. Or like, no, it's true. You have not seen something like this before. Yeah. But so I don't know. Like, I'm, yeah, I don't know if I'm just like willfully misreading this text. Maybe, maybe so. Or reading it in light of what's going to come a little bit later. But and then that sort of back and forth is Sarah's like, oh, I don't know if it's OK to make God laugh. So yeah. she's like, because like God, I don't know. You don't think of God as like sitting around being a right. jokester that much. Right. Right. And then God's like, no, no, really, seriously. Like, you laughed. I'm like, I'll show you. So right. I, re- I read that gentler way, but it might just be because that's the way that I need to read it. I don't know. No, that's true. And it could also be, you know, Sarah, when she laughed, didn't have any reason to believe that God was involved in this whole situation. Right. So, you know, often still now when people are in a religious context, sometimes they feel like they have to be very serious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because God is very serious. And so, uh, yeah. It could also be, I mean, this question of like, when do they know that they're talking to God? And if they don't know they're talking to God, then there's just like three dudes standing (laughs) standing outside their tent talking about like, you're going to have a kid and like, whatever. And so she's like, ha! And then then (laughs) when the person says, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Then maybe she's like, oh, I didn't realize I didn't realize what we I were talking about. I know that's what about. we were talking about here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she's like self-conscious because she maybe she wouldn't have laughed if she had known what, what they were doing or who yeah. they were. Okay. I have to ask you one more question. Yeah. I imagine you have noticed that what Sarah laughs about is not the fact that she is, is not specifically the fact that she's going to have a baby. It's the part before that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That she is to have enjoyment, like, you know, enjoy sex 
with her husband so old. Yeah. So it's, uh, okay, so that's what she says. But then when God repeats this to Abraham, God goes back to the the fact that she will bear a child as though that were the thing yeah. that made her laugh. Yeah. It's so interesting because the CEB kind of, gl- like, they gloss over that issue. In verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself thinking, I'm no longer able to have children. Mm. But that is not what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says literally, like, I no longer have pleasure and my husband is old. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> yeah. And the, yeah, those are causally connected, I, I imagine. Uh, so I don't know, like, the CEB is kind of following the correction that the angel makes. Mm. That is really interesting. Because there is, I mean, the issue has been since Genesis 12 about the fact that they are quite old and not able to have Mm -hmm. children. And so you sort of expect that's what she's going to laugh about. But you're exactly right. It's not what she's, that's not what she says. Or it's not what she's thinking about when she laughs. What do you make of that, Amy? Well, you know, I hadn't thought of this before, but I, I, it just occurred to me that again, like Sarah is sort of eavesdropping on a conversation between her husband and three dudes. Yeah. <laughs> so that puts a sort of different light on it to me yeah. than if God had said to Sarah, you're going to have a baby. Yeah. Instead, it's sort of, it's almost like she's watching like a locker room conversation yeah, yeah, yeah. where these guys are like, your wife's going to get knocked up. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, really? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> really? That's really going to happen? Yeah. I don't know that uh, the rabbis reading this text understand this as God Okay, so the the Talmud, I'll quote the Talmud here. It says, great is peace for even the Holy One, blessed be he, made a change on account of it. Meaning to spare the couple the arguments that they would probably have had if God had actually quoted what Sarah said back to Because Sarah didn't say anything out loud. She thought something. So Abraham has not heard I hadn't thought about it that way. And so the angel or the Lord or whoever, instead of telling Abraham what she actually said, like cleans it up for him so he's not embarrassed. Mm-hmm. I love that. And so what's the interpretation then? Like God God sometimes smooths out the rough edges. Well, yeah, that, I mean, the teaching, there's actually Jewish law that comes out of this, halakha, that one is not obligated to tell the whole truth if it will hurt someone's feelings. Oh, I love that. Because God doesn't hear. Yeah. Yeah. The more important thing is peace in the household. And so we don't need to share that particular tidbit. I love that. It's a very weird scene, though. That's a very weird scene. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about this weird scene, or should we move on to the next weird scene? I think let's, I think let's move on. Let's move on. Okay, so we're skipping a little bit to chapter 21. Chapter 21 is actually the reading that we do on the first day of Rosh Hashanah because there's a a rabbinic text that reports that it was on Rosh Hashanah that the Lord took note of Sarah. I don't know where the rabbinic text gets that from, but anyway, this is... If you only go to synagogue a couple times a year, you're going to hear this. (laughs) Yeah. 
Okay, so we are in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, and I will read. The Lord took note of Sarah as he had promised, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken. Abraham gave his newborn son, whom Sarah had borne him, the name of Isaac. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would suckle children? Yet I have borne a son in his old age. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Bobby, these first couple verses make the same point very many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the first verse, the main point seems to be God did the thing. <laughs> yes. And, and also God did, it. God did the thing too. Yes. Right. Remember the thing that God said God was going to do. God did that thing. But it's interesting to me that here, this is really in terms of Sarah. Like God did, the Lord took note of Sarah and did as he had promised for Sarah. And in the last chapter, God didn't even really talk to, I mean, he talked to Sarah to tell her that she laughed. Mm -hmm. No, he didn't. He talked to Abraham to tell Abraham that Sarah laughed and Sarah just overheard that. It's kind of interesting at the very end of that that last text because... Sarah said, I didn't laugh. And the Lord said, mm-hmm. no, you laughed. That seems to be the one. That's the, the, yes, yeah. that is the direct speech. Oh, you laughed. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting, Amy. Like part of me is just like, well, finally, be, you know, because yeah. this, this thing has been unfolding since Genesis 12. And Sarah's been sort of weirdly implicated and also like not implicated. Like originally Abraham thought, my household servant mm-hmm. is going to inherit me. And then there was the whole Hagar incident because they mm-hmm. thought Sarah was not up to the task. And then the three men talked to Abraham while Sarah's in the background. And finally, the fir- this is the first time really that she's kind of been front and center. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what to say about that other than like, thank goodness, like she's finally getting attention or like yeah. being acknowledged for her yeah. role, publicly acknowledged. Yeah, this is the verb it uses here for the Lord took note of Sarah is pakad, um, which in in a different form as Hebrew sort of maneuvers through different parts of speech, it comes up in our liturgy as fokade Sarah, the one who Mm. takes note of Sarah. But like, this is one of the titles of God, like, you know, the shield of Abraham and the one who who remembers like in this, like that verb has an almost like administrative quality to me. Like, I mm. gotcha. Like yeah. I, I'm keep, I know I'm keeping track of you. I like that she is, that she's risen to the center of at least these couple verses. Mm-hmm. But, and it raises the important issue that is then addressed in verses two and three. We must be very, very clear that the father of this child <laughs> yes. is Abraham. Yes. Because this has been the whole, as you mentioned in the introduction, like this is the drama that is unfolding here yeah. at this moment. There is a promise of lineage 
And it is unclear how that could possibly happen. Yes. And so we have to make sure at this point that we all know that this child who has been born to Sarah is fathered by Abraham. Yeah, for sure. And so so it bridges all the way back to Genesis 12 and that promise that God makes there to Abraham. And so, you know, God is a God who keeps the promises in the big sweep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting also that like along the way, there's been a lot of turmoil and in that turmoil, like if you go back and read that Hagar story, like God is faithful in a certain kind of way to Hagar in that story. God is faithful to Ishmael. God is faithful to Sarah. God is faithful to Abraham. God is going to be faithful to Isaac. There's just some interesting thing. I mean, this is Abraham's story at the end of the mm-hmm. day, but there are also all these other characters in here who are important in varying degrees and ways. And God's constantly being portrayed as being faithful to all of those people too. I don't quite know what to make of that other than to say, like, it's it's not that there's one overarching promise and everybody else is expendable, Mm -hmm. but that there is this sort of like general blessing, general attentiveness. Sarah and Abraham rise to a sort of special degree there, but it's, it's within this framework of God is faithful to God's promises. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I love that I, Isaac, of course, Yitzchak is like, that means laughter. Mm-hmm. And so like that whole thing about were you being critiqued for laughing? When God tells Abraham in chapter 17, Abraham laughs. When God tells Sarah in chapter 18, Sarah laughs. When Sarah imagines telling people in this text in verse six, like everyone else is going to laugh with me. Like there's just like this whole thing that God has done evokes laughter and they end up naming the kid that. Mm-hmm. So they don't forget, I think, that this promise that seems so laughable, seems so impossible, has actually come, come to fruition. So let's, they're not embarrassed about it. They're not ashamed of that laughter. They're like, yeah, this is a crazy thing that happened. Mm. And so let's remember it and let's share it. And let's like, we don't have to be ashamed when other people laugh. We just say like, yeah, it is like it's totally crazy what happened to us. And mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. I just love that sort of sense of there's like this evocation of joy and laughter and like good humor that that comes out of this story, which has seemed kind of serious. Yeah. Well, and it is serious. And I guess that's the way that, you know, that's the way stories with God unfold. Like it is serious. And also yeah. it's like strange and totally unexpected and funny. And, you know, it it's, It's all the things. I love what you said about Isaac's name. I mean, you know, I realized the connection of Isaac to laughter, but I hadn't really thought about Isaac as a reminder that even the things that seem so beyond what is possible that it makes you laugh, like those things are, look, there's one sitting right in front of you, you know, which I think is a is a really, I don't know, that's just a, a beautiful way to capture that thought, you know, yeah. alongside instead of naming someone Faith, which is also a beautiful name or, you know, whatever, but that the sort yeah. of, it captures like the impossible, the incomprehensibility of it yeah. and also the truth of it. Yeah. Is, um, yeah, that's really beautiful. I love that. Amy, you and I talk about this from time to time and it came up in the Bible Worm Collaborative. And so I want to ask you what you think 
I mean, this is a difficult text in the sense of here we have a miraculous birth that is given to someone who is first unable to have children and then too old to have children. And that what is celebrated is that she finally does have a child. This is a difficult text for a lot of people, I would imagine, who experience childbirth or lack of childbirth in all sorts of ways, particularly women among us. So I'm just curious. I mean, I know you don't have all all the answers or uh, anything like that, but you do have some more awareness and sensitivity than I do. So I'm curious what you think. How do we treat a text like this in a community where people have all sorts of experiences around Mm -hmm. these sort of fertility issues? That's such a great question, Bobby. And I, that, that on uh, Rosh Hashanah, the text we read alongside this from the Haftarah, from the prophets, is the, the story of Hannah praying mm. in the temple. Yeah. Hannah also who cannot, seems not to be able to bear a child, but then offers like what is like the, like paradigmatic, perfect prayer. Um, and her prayer is answered and she has a child. And, um, and that's not always how that works. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm really, I'm glad you raised the question. I think in this, I think in some ways the Hana story is harder for me. Mm. In this one, it doesn't seem like, I mean, I maybe, maybe because the story is less centered on Sarah's experience, at least where we've read it here, it hasn't like clued me mm. into this as much. It It feels more like anything can happen. Not mm-hmm. like if you merit to have a child, you'll have a child. And if you don't merit to have a child, you won't merit to have a child, which does seem to be what the, the Torah says in other places. So unfortunately, that that thinking was around and probably still is around sometimes, mm-hmm. whether we want to, you know, acknowledge it consciously or not. So I think, I mean, I don't want to do anything to take away from the reality of that in people's experience of the text. I mean, I I remember sitting in synagogue, like, right after a miscarriage at Rosh Hashanah, like, reading this text and just Mm. being like, I don't even know how to sit in this Uh room. And then, thank God, the person who gave the Devar Torah that day was talking about her own experience of infertility. So at least it's an opportunity to sort of raise up that we must not use <laughs> these stories as like the ultimate triumph story because right. uh, that's that's not how human bodies work. I do think this particular version of it offers the possibility of more just sort of like, you really can't imagine what God has in mind. You yeah. can't imagine what God has in mind. And impossible things might happen. It might not be the impossible thing that you wanted to happen, but... <laughs> Right. But there's there's always this sort of possibility of of surprise. Uh-huh. But yeah, that, yeah. that pain's real. Uh-huh. Thanks for sharing that, Amy. I think that way of reading it as, you know, at the end of the day, this there's a the metaphor that's at work here is God makes a way where there is where there is no way, where there seems to be no way. But it is couched in this very specific way that, that can be very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. All righty then. Here's one of these stories that you have probably read a thousand and one times. Yeah. 
but you are reading it right now at this moment on this day in this iteration of your body with this iteration of your household. What's, what's feeling pressing for you? Normally, I feel like when I read this set of texts, I think about the hospitality part in Genesis 18, which I think is really important. And I think there's so much one can unpack from there. Today, for whatever reason, I'm really drawn to this theme of laughter. Mm. I keep coming back to it. And the like, the laughter that Abraham has in the text we have not read, and then the laughter Sarah has here, and then her embarrassment about laughing and then God make, making sure she knows that she laughed. Mm-hmm. And then the naming of the kid laughter. And then that statement at, at the very end of this text, everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And so I just the laughter in this text has gone from being like a source of like awkwardness and mm-hmm. shame maybe or like frightfulness like, I don't know, there's like a nervous laughter or like an incredulous laughter. And by the end of the text, it's become public. It's become positive. It's become communal. Like, hey, this is my kid laughter. <laughs> you know, like, let me tell you that story. And then everybody's like, ha, ha, ha. And, yeah. and it's all around this promise that God has made and that God has kept. Mm-hmm. And like, I take two things from it. One is that God sometimes promises things that seem laughable in the moment of the promise. And the way I read this text, it is perfectly okay to laugh when you experience something of God's promise as laughable. We live a lot of our life with promises that are given to us in the biblical text that seem to have no chance that they will ever come to any kind of fruition. We could cry about that. Um, We could laugh about that. And we can say, that seems ridiculous to me. And so there's sort of a affirmation of that here for me. Like Abraham laughed, Sarah laughed, you can laugh. Mm -hmm. And we don't need to deny it. And so God Mm -hmm. says, no, you did. Like, really, you did laugh. Mm. And so like, okay, yeah, I did. I did. Like, we can just, we can all acknowledge that and we can let it be what it is. I love that. And then there's the movement at the end of this text to say like, here is the, here is what has become of my earlier laughter. And I'm going to share it in a way that, inspires the community. I just think like, I hear these stories with some frequency at Canvas community where most of my fellow worshipers are homeless and they all, not all of them, but a lot of them have some story about, let me tell you what my life used to be like. And then I found God or I found this community or something happened. And now my life is like this other thing. And it becomes a source of inspiration for other people who are still back at the first stage where Everything yeah. seems impossible. Yeah. So the like public sharing of what used to be, the naming of things, the communal celebration of things, yeah. like there's a real richness and value to that in the formation of community. And it can have a real effect on other people who are struggling with, with similar things. So yeah. I think there's a lot in the laughter mm-hmm. in this text. I love that. And I love, I love so many things about what you said, but one thought that crossed my mind towards the end of your your words there was, you know, as you were talking about the folks you know from Canvas community sharing sort of where their lives used to be and where their lives are now as sources of inspiration, the thing that went through my head was, yes, and it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the thing that's going to happen for you exactly. Right. 
It means you cannot imagine what is possible. You really can't. Yeah. And I think one of the things, you know, tying back to the fertility question that you raised before, it's so easy to read this and say like, but I want this specific thing to be possible for me. Yeah. And that's not what it's offering. Yeah, that's so important. What about you, Amy, when you're reading this familiar text today? What is coming to the front for you? You know, it's. I think you might have persuaded me, Bobby, that that when God responds to Sarah at the end of um, the reading we had from chapter 18, and God says, no, you, you did laugh, that it's not— I always had read that in such a stern voice in yeah. my head— and reading it in a stern voice, especially knowing that when Abraham laughs, Abraham didn't get in trouble right, <laughs> in right. chapter 17. It really, for me, it sits in this sort of gendered way where there's an expectation in our modern world for, yeah. for women to be serious in a, in a way that men don't have to be serious in the workplace. Mm. But then if we're serious, then we're no fun, but if we joke around, then we're not taken seriously. And, yeah. you know, like there's like this weird push and pull that is terrible. And I really want to sit with the possibility that that's not actually what's happening here, that I'm mm. importing some of that from my own experience of that gendered world that we're in. And I don't have to. So I'm going to sit with that. Yeah. I want to add, it is laughter that comes to the fore for me too. And I want to share an extremely short poem by, do you know the poet Hafiz? Is that how you say his name? Hafiz? He's a Persian poet from like the 14th century. Oh, no. Oh, man. He's so good. This is a poem. It's very short. God and I have become like two giant fat people living in a tiny boat. We keep bumping into each other and laughing. Hey, I love that. I love it so much. I love it so much. We were, um, a few weeks ago, we were at a weekday prayer service and my rabbi's, I don't know, seven month old or something was not having it anymore. So I, you know, he sat on the floor and I sat, he could sit sort of now, but not reliably. So you know how you sit behind a baby. So they think they're sitting, they are sitting, but when they fall over, they'll fall on your leg instead of on the floor. And every once in a while, he would fall backwards and look at me and then laugh every time. Like, he had no (laughs) idea I was there. And this was so surprising. Like, look, he has a friend. And it really, having that in the context of a prayer service really made me think, like, that really is a lot of Mm. life of faith for me. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I, I I think I'm sitting on my own, and I sort of am but mm-hmm. not reliably. Uh, I love and that. then I fall backwards and I'm like, oh, hey, look, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then you can, You're yeah. still here. I didn't know you I were here. That. And what a great thing to be able to laugh when that happens. Mm-hmm. I love that, Amy. Yeah. It's good stuff. Well, next time we are, we're not going to hear about Isaac later in his life. We're going to jump <laughs> instead to his son, Jacob. Yes. In Genesis chapter 32, the story, the very famous story of Jacob wrestling with God. Yes. And we'll see what it has to say to us at this moment. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to that conversation. Sounds good. Have a great week, y'all. See you next time. Bye. 
Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next time as we continue in the book of Genesis with chapter 32, verses 9 to 13 and 22 to 30, the story of Jacob's late night wrestling match. Until then, keep on digging.